Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk Radio with the Middle East Forum Century Radio Hour. Coming back after two weeks of vacation, it's great to be back in the studio. I was previously broadcasting from New York about a month ago where we had the results of the Israeli elections after having spent a good five hours on I-24 News giving live election updates. And a lot has happened in the Middle East since our last broadcast. First and foremost, we have news now coming out of the White House that there has been a grave threat made against American forces in Iran and our allies in the Middle East. First, starting with a notice over the weekend where National Security Advisor John Bolton made the announcement that the United States was sending a battle group, a carrier battle group led by the USS Abraham Lincoln to the Middle East and a strike wing of U.S. bombers potentially being deployed to Bahrain, Qatar, Kuwait, maybe even Diego Garcia, where we usually place our B-2 bombers when the region is on fire. And the reason for this and the announcement of this was because allegedly the Israeli Mossad, the Israeli intelligence services, gave a dire warning to the American intelligence community, which was immediately forwarded to the White House, and also leading to the cancellation of a visit of Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to Germany, where he arrived on Baghdad on the ground yesterday to coordinate American action in the region. The threat comes only a few weeks after the United States listed the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, of the nation-state of Iran and its affiliates, like the Al-Quds Brigades, the members of this group, which has been around since 1979, 40 years after the Iranian Islamic Revolution took place. And the warning went as follows. The IRGC, its affiliates, and its proxies throughout the region are planning an immediate attack against American interests, American forces, and America's allies in the Middle East. I surmise this may have had something to do with the recent uptick in violence caused by Hamas against Israel, coming from Gaza, where over 600 rockets landed in a 24-hour period from Saturday to Monday until a ceasefire was declared at 4.30 in the morning, Israel time, on Monday morning. This may have been an order by Iran to have its proxies begin to act. It also may have just been internecine conflict between the Islamic Jihad, another Iranian proxy in Gaza, and Hamas jockeying for power at the beginning of Ramadan and one month before the U.S. introduces its peace plan for trying to achieve Israeli-Palestinian compromise and peace. But going back to the larger picture, Iran is on its heels. The U.S. failed to renew waivers for countries which were allowed to import oil, albeit American sanctions preventing any Iranian oil imports to be paid for by using the U.S. financial system. About one year ago, when President Trump found Iran in violation of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, otherwise known as the Iran deal, and the U.S. started to scale back its alleviating measures on Iran, which were part of that deal, and began to reimpose sanctions on the country, Iran still had 
some hope for being able to bring in foreign currency by way of its oil imports, excuse me, oil exports and its natural gas exports. There were some 17 to 18 countries which were granted waivers by the United States, including Turkey, India, Japan, South Korea, and other major customers for Iranian oil. Now that those waivers have not been renewed, Iran is beginning to feel the true chokehold of the sanctions being placed on its economy. It doesn't help that in Iran some year and a half ago, massive protests began in some 90-odd Iranian cities, not by the students that led the protest movement after the election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in June of 2009, but these protests were led by the Iranian lower and middle class, not starting or stemming from the university or its major metropolitan and cosmopolitan capitals like Shiraz, Isfahan, and Tehran, but the protests themselves started in the blue-collar city of Mashhad in the northeast of the country and gradually spread to the countryside all throughout Iran. So with the Iranian regime now facing internal turmoil, the chokehold of sanctions, and the lack of the reactivation of American waivers allowing Iran to export oil to these countries, which were given a pass for the past six months. And just an overall feeling that the vice is starting to be tightened on Iran's control of not just its own interests in the region, but also its ability to exercise and project power throughout the rest of the Middle East. It seems as if, though, this Mossad warning is a prescient reminder that Iran has the ability to strike back, and the U.S. is acting in accordance with its doctrine of preemption. Except in this case, the preemptive action is not kinetic. It is a warning to Iran to remind them that the U.S. still has the qualitative military edge in the region. Over the next few days and weeks, we will see how Iran acts out and reacts to the deployment of overwhelming American force to the region. Need I not remind you that the U.S. also has a second conflict brewing on its southern border with Venezuela. The failed uprising by Juan Guaido, the interim president of Venezuela, is at least, at least is recognized by some 50-odd Western liberal democracies, tried to get the army to revolt against president or the the conflicting president, Maduro. That uprising failed. My hope is, is that similar American action in the Middle East at this point does not lead to an all-out war with Iran. Perhaps cooler heads will prevail and elements of the Iranian regime that do not seek to stoke the coals and raise the embers of Iranian fire directed against American forces which would then lead to an overwhelming American response, not just against the Iranian regime that they've indicated that would be targets in any reprisal or any preemptive action against Iran carried out by American forces in order to stem the possibility that Iran will lash out first, but also against Iran's core nuclear, oil producing, and other means of infrastructure that still provided a lifeline with its deals to China and Russia which are essentially the only two sources of foreign currency that are current coming into the Iranian economy. Yes, it does have its illicit and corrupt practices ran by the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which, according to some estimates, can control between 30 and 45% of the Iranian economy. But let's try to solve this without force before the region ends up in another war again.
After these messages, we'll be back with our guests. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rational excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today, or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to WWDB, 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk Radio. I'm Greg Roman, here with the Middle East Forum Century Radio Broadcast. Joining us now is someone I've been wanting to get on the program for the past few months, and I've been following diligently his analyses, not just coming from where he works right now at the New America Think Tank, but also the work that he was doing when he was the head of foreign policy magazine South Asia Channel. David Sturman holds a master's degree from Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies, and his current research focuses on terrorism and violent extremism in America, immigration, terrorist threats, foreign fighter recruitment, and the effectiveness and consequences of American counterterrorism efforts. David, welcome back to the program. Thanks. So, David, I, I began the opening broadcast just talking about What's going on right now with what seems to be a ratcheting up of activities of the United States facing some uh, unknown Iranian threat, according to intelligence reports that are coming out of the region. But I want to pivot our focus for a second to look at what the United States is doing right now within its own borders in order to address any threats, and not necessarily of Iran. We'll get into that maybe a little bit later in the interview, but just in general. What footing is America on in being able to take care of its own internal security needs, specifically addressing Middle Eastern threats that may be here in our country? Right. So I think the primary key point to make is that the United States has been remarkably successful and secure um, from and at preventing foreign terrorist organization-directed attacks within the United States. We're now um, closing in on 18 years after the 9-11 attacks, and there has not been a single deadly attack directed by a foreign terrorist organization in the United States. When you look back at what people were saying immediately after 9-11, they weren't just expecting another attack, they were expecting multiple attacks on the level of 9-11 or worse, involving weapons of mass destruction even nuclear attacks. 
And what we've seen is that's just both not happened, but also is so far from happening that it's hard to conclude that those assessments were not simply wrong or overhyped. Now, using the case of Najibullah Zazi, who had plotted to bomb the New York subway back in 2009 and 2010 after receiving training in an al-Qaeda camp in Pakistan, after having grown up in the United States, well, he didn't grow up in the United States, he came here at a young age, spent some time in New York City, and then went back to the region before he started plotting to commit attacks on our soil. Using him as a case study, what are some of the methods that the United States law enforcement and intelligence community uses to make sure that there are no attacks taking place on our soil, at least on the, the level of 9-11? Right. So the New York City subway um, plot is a very interesting case. It's now, um, I guess, a decade, just short of a decade um, in the past. And what we see is that in many ways that case is not what we're facing today. Um, in that case, in a couple cases surrounding it, you saw Americans who went over to Pakistan, traveled up to the tribal areas, connected with al-Qaeda, received training, and came back. We actually have not seen any attack plotting except for a single case by Americans inside the U.S. who went and joined Syria. Um, there's been no attacks by such individuals. That's in contrast to at least <clears throat> one carried out attack, although it failed to kill anyone, conducted by someone who went to Pakistan, the Times Square bombing in the U.S. What we've seen instead is ISIS has shifted to this more online mediation of communication to people, and even really just inspiring people by the message with no direct communication. Part of what sort of generated that shift and gets to your question about the response is that the U.S. has become very active um, even before the subway bombing, but that re or subway bombing plot, but that really sparked the interest in tracking these um, foreign fighters, monitoring who is going to conflict zones abroad, conducting military action against groups that gain territory and the ability to train people physically abroad, and also generated a whole set of sort of data collection and information sharing efforts to prevent people from coming back unnoticed. In addition, there's sort of a layered set of defenses that have existed for a while, including a widespread informant network, um, technological surveillance, as well as just the willingness of the various communities and also the general public to report suspicious activity. Now, while there may have not been any Americans that received training overseas, there have been multiple foreign-inspired and coordinated attacks that took place here in the United States that were encouraged by elements outside of our borders. I, port to, I point to Anwar al-Malaki and the Fort Hood attack. I point to the 2014 Queens Hatchet attack, the San Bernardino attack, the Orlando massacre, the Curtis Colwell Center attack in Garland, Texas. I mean, the list goes on and on. So while we may have been able to stop the likes of those people who had received training in Pakistan, or even there's a few exa examples of Nigeria and Somalia and Punta Land, and e even in Syria, there are some individuals who returned and were caught coming back into the country. If we can physically secure our borders and ensure that there is a domestic intelligence network that exists full of, like you said, informants, the ability to monitor online communications, why still 
has there been the ability for known wolves or, or homegrown terrorists to be able to carry out attacks on the level of killing dozens of individuals? Right. So if you, the key aspect here is that an inspired attack um, really cuts off a bunch of the necessary actions that need to be taken to carry out a terrorist attack in the U.S. So if you imagine, say, an attempt to conduct an attack like the Paris attacks in the United States, what do you have to do to do that? You have to have Americans radicalized at home, travel over to Syria undetected, gain training in Syria, not die in the Syrian conflict, manage to exit the Syrian conflict despite increased border controls, come back to the U.S. undetected, conduct surveillance in the U.S., acquire weapons in the U.S., and then conduct the attack. That's a whole set of areas where we've seen the Layered Defenses Act. Now, if you just have someone who is reading the propaganda and decides to get a firearm and conduct an attack, that's far fewer steps. It's radicalized in the U.S. That's a relatively easy thing to do, although I would note that very few people do. It's just a matter of there's a big impact to those who do radicalize. You need to acquire a firearm, again, not particularly difficult in the U.S. And then you need to go to the site of the attack and conduct it. That's a far smaller set. And even though there's still a wide range of difficulties um, facing people thinking about carrying out those attacks, and most people, the vast majority of people, um, would never conduct such an attack. Even when you look at sort of radicalized people, there's often a tendency to pull back from violence at home um, for a variety of reasons, both their sort of self-interest as well as, to some extent, moral reasons. But it's just far easier to do. And we've seen that ISIS is very effective at generating the news cycles to promote and encourage people and generate a contagion effect where people set each other to do those. I would note, though, that... Um, these sort of jihadist attacks inspired by ISIS are part of a much broader phenomena of political and, in some ways, non-political violence in the U.S. We've seen a similar level of terrorist attacks from the far, far right, including a number of white supremacist attacks in the past few years, often much more sort of developed, involving larger groups, more sophisticated weaponry than what we've seen um, from jihadists lately, especially in the past year or two. And both of these ideological views pale in comparison with the broader phenomena of school shootings and other non-ideological mass shooting type attacks, workplace violence, domestic violence, um, these hard to pin down semi-political ideologies that are also personal grievances. Right. And, and while we do have the opportunity sometimes to get into the discussion of whether white nationalist, white supremacist, anti-Semitic attacks, I mean, just a little bit of background to give you some perspective. I was responsible for uh, arranging Jewish community security in Pittsburgh between 2012 and 2015 before I started this current job here in Philadelphia. So, I mean, when we're looking at an area like Ligonier, Pennsylvania, 
which is in uh, the southwest of the state. And we just look at the overall export of hate materials coming from the state of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is the second largest exporter of white supremacist hate literature in the world. And being very well aware of what that can do to radicalize individuals. And even if we look at what's happening in prisons, the formations of the Aryan Nation, different gangs, the ability to have these channels like 4chan, 8chan, so on and so forth. It seems as if though, if we look at the parallel developments of extremism associated with both that of white nationalists and that of jihadists, there are many tactics that they use together. And then going beyond those which are ideologically inspired, like for instance, I mean, I would be remiss not to talk about the school shootings that took place in a Denver suburb yesterday. There are plenty of ways for those who are radicalized to find the means in this country, if they reach that breaking point, to carry out an attack. But I have to get back and digress for a second because we are talking about the Middle East and, and not just the uh, other instances of domestic terrorism in the United States. And we've largely spent a, a good amount of time in the last few minutes talking about active measures and layered defense in order to prevent that inspired jihadi element of terrorism, not to negate any other terrorist attacks that are taking place, but there has been a disproportionate, a disproportionate amount of debate and coverage of several of the Trump administration's policies to try to prevent this specific style of terrorism coming from the Middle East and other areas which are inspiring Islamist, not Islamic, Islamist-inspired radical violence. So I'd like to go through a few of these measures with you and, and have you rate their efficacy and give a reason why or why not they're working. Is that okay? Absolutely. All right, let's talk about the Muslim ban. Uh, it was started off as a policy proposal of a Muslim ban. Then it went to Islamic countries. Then I think DHS right now is at a point where they're trying to prevent the entry of violently inspired Islamists to the United States. I think the first two iterations are unconstitutional and, and frankly perverse. I think the third is something that might work. Your take. So there's no support for the idea that the uh, Muslim ban or the travel ban would prevent any of these attacks. In fact, um, if it had been implemented on 9-10-2001, it would not have prevented the 9-11 attacks, nor any of the um, deadly attacks we have seen since 9-11. Moving beyond sort of the specific question of the ban on um, travel from this set of particular countries. There's really no evidence that the threat the U.S. is facing is an immigrant or a foreign infiltration threat. About 50% of the people, so at New America we track people arrested for terrorism-related crimes. 50% of the people, or thereabout, it varies a bit higher, a bit lower, depending on who gets added, um, were born U.S. citizens. About 80% are U.S. citizens or legal permanent residents. And there's really very few um, infiltration attacks. You do see some. Um, you saw one right after 9-11 with the shoe bomber. Um, we saw one in recent years where someone flew in from Canada um, and conducted a stabbing at the airport. But those aren't even... Um, well, the shoe bomber was sort of the classic infiltration attack we saw. The more recent one doesn't appear to have been directed in any manner by a foreign terrorist organization. And really what we've seen is all of the deadly attacks conducted in the U.S. have been by legal permanent residents or citizens. 
It's a homegrown threat driven by radicalization on the Internet that really doesn't know these kind of visa restrictions or boundaries. Um, beyond that, the ban also has a number of other problems, both sort of moral and constitutional, economic, that should be considered um, decreasing immigration, often from countries the U.S. benefits from bringing people from, and also at really tearing at U.S. Um, relations with Muslim communities in the U.S. and generating mistrust and anger that's not useful to the kind of partnerships that the counterterrorism apparatus and the layered defenses rely upon. So let's uh, go beyond just those who are the originators of violence and looking at those who are inspiring violence. There's a case that took place over the weekend at an event by the Muslim American Society here in Philadelphia where we had children on stage singing, chopped their heads off, and then we're speaking in reference to Jerusalem and Israel. Beyond that, we have instances of mosques and imams who received an R visa and eventually converted that into a green card in uh, Davis, California, in Portland, Oregon, in uh, Piscataway, uh, uh, New Jersey, uh, down in North Carolina. And there's a few other instances that have been tracked by organizations of individuals who received religious training overseas and then came here and preached hate in the United States. Now, when we link these individuals to those who they're preaching to, we find that there's a disproportionate amount of people who are either arrested in the advanced stages of planning a terror attack or who were at these mosques and then went overseas to fight against American allies. Or maybe perhaps I wouldn't call Bashar al-Assad an American ally, but they engaged in uh, Islamist-inspired violence against a political target not here in the U.S., but back overseas. Beyond those who are just those responsible for committing attacks, I think that we have to look at the wider circle of influence surrounding their environments. Do you think that there needs to be a way in which to ideologically question some of these individuals who are coming into the country to prevent them from preaching messages of hate? Or is the better situation just to catch them red-handed and then to say, look, you were relying on your green card application or you were relying on your citizenship application, we're going to deport you now. Yeah, generally the far better approach um, for security in the U.S., both from a civil liberties perspective as well as from an effectiveness perspective, is to focus on specific threats and specific intelligence and to have investigations that link people to organizations or turn up sort of plotting activity. Um, we found in a number of things, for example, we looked at the NSA's record of its phone metadata collection, another sort of bulk approach. And what we found was that it didn't really turn up anything at all, but what did was tips from family members and communities and informants. Um, now, I think there's certainly at some point you're going to find that there's um, maybe things that are warning signs sufficiently that should and really already are taken even before these current measures into consideration in the citizenship process. Um, I think that most of the changes the Trump administration in particular has made on this front are really unnecessary and not truly motivated by a counterterrorism approach but actually by a desire to restrict immigration more broadly. I'd also note that um, 
there's an excellent study by the Cato Institute on the question of vetting failures in particular. And what it shows is generally there's not much in the way of vetting failures to begin with, but then if you pull it back um, before 9-11, people who entered before the 9-11 attack, you do find a series of real vetting failures, people coming in, sometimes lying to gain citizenship, um, otherwise coming in in ways that are a failure of the system. Um, but then after it, it drops to essentially no vetting failures. So, so measures that the U.S. government took, maybe in uh, reforming the security services, putting together some 20-odd agencies under DHS, streamlining intelligence sharing. I mean, we all know, uh, according to the 9-11 report, the failure for the FBI and the CIA to share information with one another. And, and I understood why there, those you know, uh, Chinese walls were in place. But you're saying that after the 9-11 attacks took place, the reforms that were put in place by the Bush administration have corrected some of those vetting failures that took place pre-9-11? Exactly. And what you see when you look at and dig into some of the um, data the Trump administration has cited, in addition to a number of other really misleading aspects about their use of data, is that most of the cases they're citing are from pre-9-11. Um, so even to the extent that they do represent vetting failures, many of those vetting failures were long ago resolved. Um, and over time, there does appear to have been an increased percentage of um, the terrorism cases. It's hard to tell, small sample sizes, but an increased percentage that are U.S.-born citizens or been, have been in the United States for very long periods before um, engaging in criminal terrorist activity. So I would just posit that the ability to restrict and prevent homegrown terrorism is also uh, a way in which that we have to look at how foreign-inspired terrorism takes place. So, uh, in general, I think that, uh, David, I appreciate you joining us today on this call. And after these messages, we'll be joined by Hassan Hassan. Fascism was a danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org. Or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff. But still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover key tar from your 80s cover band? 
Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to WWDB 860 AM. This is Greg Roman with the Middle East Forum Century Radio Hour. I'm going to bring David back on just for a second to give some closing remarks because we unfortunately got disconnected. David, sorry about that technical failure, but we'll give you about a minute to close our conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, To summarize, I think that it's critical to note that the threat to the United States has both been relatively limited since 9-11 and particularly limited in the current age. But what we've seen is this development of a broader phenomena of inspired political violence, both jihadists but also white supremacists as well as a range of other non-political actions. Um, And that's really something that's about American society. It's not an immigrant problem. DHS's own analyses really support that it's an American problem or a long-term resident of the U.S problem. Um, So the answer to it is to continue our layered defenses and not embrace the immigration-centric counterterrorism policy or what arguably is really an immigration policy that has embraced counterterrorism as an excuse to pursue economically or socially motivated immigration goals. David, thanks for joining us this morning. And now we shift over to, thanks for joining us. Now we shift over to Hassan Hassan, a senior non-resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy with a focus on militant Islam, Syria, Iraq, and the Arab Gulf states. He previously was an associate fellow at Chatham House Middle East and North Africa program in London, and before that, a research associate at the Delma Institute in Abu Dhabi, and a deputy opinion editor for The National, an English language daily in the United Arab Emirates. He's advised senior policymakers in the United States, Europe, and the Middle East, and has testified before the U.S. Congress on extremism. Hassan, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot. So I would be remiss if we didn't start our conversation just with an update on what's going on right now with the ability for Iran to activate its proxies in the Middle East after we heard over the last 48 hours that the U.S. has deployed significant military resources to the region. What's going on with that? Well, the, uh, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, the, 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 the biggest risk now is that Iran at some point needs to uh, show muscles and flex it to show it can flex it flex its muscles in places like Iraq and Syria and that's uh, definitely increasing the temperature in the in the Middle East and uh, places like Yemen Syria Iraq Lebanon and so on um, the hope is obviously that Iran is not going to escalate because they know that the Trump administration is now willing to say we are gonna uh, we're not going to do basically like the Obama administration would just cower to Iran. We're going to escalate or counter escalate. So there's there's that, that risk. But in, in my opinion, I don't think that's going to happen because Iran has interest in Syria that the U.S. is more capable of uh, hurting than say Iran can can do the, the you know can do the same against the U.S. So there's a dynamic where Iran actually is very careful not to. Uh, antagonize the U.S. so much in a way that all the gains that Iran made in Syria by stabilizing the Assad regime, uh, I think there's a risk that the U.S. can reverse that very easily. 
by responding in some way of attacking Iranian proxies in Syria, which would then maybe destabilize their ability to hold territory and perhaps invite a Sunni backlash to fill the void? Exactly, yeah. And uh, you, you know that the U.S. is present now in uh, one half of, uh, one, one third of Syria, sorry, in the eastern part of Syria. So it has presence on, on the ground. It also has presence in corner between, on the, on the borders between uh, Jordan and Syria, Iraq, and that very critical area. So Al-Tanaf and Dar al-Zor. Exactly. So if the, if, if the U.S. decides today to escalate and uh, say, uh, invite some of the forces opposed to Bashar Assad to open fronts here and there, I think that's going to be a very bad time, a time for the regime, for Iran and for Russia, to, you know, uh, because the regime has a, a serious economic problems. The regime is trying, or at least Russia, uh, is trying to uh, take some of the areas in the northwest currently occupied by or taken by uh, by the Syrian, uh, Syrian rebels. Um, so the, basically there's vulnerability for Iran in Syria more than any else, even though the U.S. is more vulnerable in Iraq, say, or Yemen. So let's go over this for a second. Let's imagine we've got a map of the Middle East in front of us. Anybody listening right now, we're going to go from the west to the east. We've got Israel, Lebanon, and Syria there on the Mediterranean Sea. We've got the Iranian border with Afghanistan and Pakistan. They're all the way in the east. And we have this sort of chessboard where we have Russian and Turkish and Iranian. And, and I'm just talking about hegemonic occupying forces now, not so much about the... Um, you know, let's 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 say that the nativists who are in Syria or who are in Iraq, Lebanon, Israel, whatever else, Jordan, and you have the global picture of the United States now clamping down on the ability for Iran to bring in foreign con- currency and to have its economy run and, and and hum like a machine. You have the waivers which have been taken off on Iran's oil exports in the countries which we're receiving it. You do have some promises and some some uh, language being used by the European Union, by Turkey, Russia, and China, saying they won't recognize some of this through a special access program. But Iran is feeling the pinch of American sanctions. And this intelligence that came out over the weekend indicates, at least in my analysis, that Iran is looking to do something to disrupt America's strategy to put a chokehold on Iran. And I don't think America is seeking active regime change insofar as they haven't launched attacks against Iran in Tehran, Shiraz, Isfahan, wherever else. But they are trying to make Iran feel the bite of American sanctions. And there is a demand within Tehran right now, at least from the ultra-conservative circles. And I'm not talking about those in parliament or those who are sitting in the Assembly of Experts at the Guardian Council. Members of the IRGC are demanding that the Ayatollah or perhaps the Al-Quds forces, the uh, overseas element of the IRGC, take action against American targets to make America pay a price for its so-called insolence against Iranian interests in the rest of the region. So on one hand, what you're saying is, if Iran were to act and America was to offer reprisals to those actions, Iran would be the weaker actor. And I'm not just trying to balance military force and military might here. But if Iran will not act kinetically against the United States, what other options does it have to convince the U.S. or to attempt to convince the U.S. to scale back these sanctions? Well, I mean, uh, as far as as long as they don't 
uh, offer concessions, then there's nothing the U- Iran can do uh, except through kinetic uh, uh, activities or through pro- proxy. So by creating or, or you know um, by uh, creating some fire somewhere in, in the region, and I think Iran has a massive, probably even more favorable grounds on on, on that on that level that they could revive uh, proxies here and here and there. It really all depends. I mean, the formula is very simple. Uh, if the U.S. It's, it, all it, uh, all of it all of this boils down to whether Washington is willing. There's a political will to escalate against Iran, and uh, with what we've seen over the past one year at least, that uh, Washington is uh, willing to do that, and uh, the result is that Iran is feeling the bite, and uh, very clearly and concretely in in different places, uh, not just in Iran uh, inside Iran, but Hezbollah Hezbollah in Lebanon recently has been complaining about the dwindling of their resources, and they've been begging their followers to donate some of their money down to their, uh, whether they have gold in their house, they can sell and give to Hezbollah or uh, extra property, they could sell and give it to Hezbollah. So they are definitely unable or less able than before to uh, provide for their proxies in the region. And in Syria, uh, that's, there's even more, like we said, uh, more vulnerability in, in, the, in that regard. So, uh, so far, for now, I think the U.S. is willing to increase the pressure, uh, and uh, that seems to be, uh, you know, taking effect. So, as long if that policy continues for say another five years uh, or more, then uh, Iran will have to reconsider its approach uh, in the Middle East. That they can't, they cannot just act with impunity, where uh, the uh, administration in uh, Washington is. Uh, only wants to please Iran, wants to make a deal with it. Uh, but there's a, there's an, another administration that's trying to say, uh, unless Iran changes its behavior in the Middle East, we're going to uh, increase the pressure that might eventually change the regime itself. So we're looking at a binary option here for the regime. They either commit to a policy of acting out against the U.S. kinetically and then invite the destruction that that brings upon them, which may lead to regime change. I think it would lead to much greater instability. Or they say, you know what? Maybe we should negotiate with the U.S. Maybe we will offer some caveats on the nuclear program. These sanctions are not worth the risk of having an internal revolt against our influence and power here. Let's play ball. Is, is that what the point we're getting to? Yes, I think precisely. And... Um there's also another dynamic, which is that, uh, which is really the conundrum, the real one, which is that Iran, even though, even if the regime, the Iran regime thinks it's better to negotiate something with the U.S., they may not be, uh, they may not be able to do that. They feel that they have to stick to their uh, approach because uh, any reform to the regime, any changes in the regime, any concessions made in the regime, that will reverse some of some of their gains. So they feel they have made so much gain in the Middle East in terms of uh, reach and expansion, that they cannot just uh, give it to the U.S. Like, just say, uh, we'll hand you, hand you over all these gains because you're going to, uh, re- you know, uh, relieve uh, sanctions or so on and so forth. So that's the, that's the problem. On one hand, they think they can uh, buy time and they can buy their time until the U.S., Either changes, uh, administration changes, or uh, somehow there's increased political pressure in the U.S. to 
whether inside the U.S. or from Europeans or from countries like Turkey, to say we're not going to increase uh, pressure against Iran because we have interests uh, in Iran that uh, work for us uh, than than the than the sanctions. So that's that's the dynamic: is how long can the U.S. play this game? And uh, from an, an Iranian perspective, they think they have all the time in the world to, to uh, you know, buy, buy their time, but also any concession they make might affect them negatively uh, domestically and in, in their neighborhood. I mean, one of the things that I find fascinating about Iran and its revolution 40 years ago versus a lot of the other Arab revolutions and uprisings that took place just with a few uh, a few weeks ago, right? We had Algeria and Sudan go through this process now, probably the last two Arab states that may have been uh, activated after the Arab Spring in 2011. But Iran's revolution was different. Uh, Maybe the only one which was somewhat similar was Egypt because Iran was revolting against 3,000 years of Persian history, drastically changing the character of how the country saw itself, how it saw its minority groups. I mean, yes, Islam was introduced there in in, in the late uh, first millennia, I guess if we want to call it that after um, it began in the cradle of the Middle East, in the breadbasket of the Middle East. But in Iraq, in Syria, in in Lebanon, in uh, Algeria, Morocco maybe was a little bit of a lesser extent, in Tunisia, these were largely polities that were created after the downfall of Western colonial powers. The revolution that took place in Iran was revolting against thousands of years of Persian history where they just tried to throw it out the door. Now they do observe some customs. But... The situation there is different. So where you had uh, dictators being overthrown in 2011, 2012, the Shah being overthrown in 1979, I think that the total culture change which has taken place over the past two generations in Iranian history or Persian history, depending on how we look at it, it's, it's not just that it's the current leadership who is facing at risk. It's the entire revolutionary Islamist revolution, the Islamist revolutionary project, which is at risk if the uh, Persians, the 50% of the of Iran, which is Persian, and the other 50%, which are different minority groups, Kurds, Azeris, uh, Baluchis, Abkhazis, uh, whatever we want to talk about, that really puts Iran at the, at the point of imploding, not just of switching the regime. Exactly. And I think this, the stakes are uh, higher in, in Iran. On one hand, you have, uh, uh, you know, 40 years of uh, rule that, uh, you know, radicalized or kind of uh, convinced a portion of the population of uh, of this way, the, Islam, the Islamist way. Obviously, when you rule a country for that, uh, for that long, you have a portion of the population being uh, true believers in the, in the cause. Uh, but on the other hand, you have, because of the rule, because of the Islamist rule, you have probably a greater portion of that uh, population not just being uh, remaining um, loyal to the previous uh, way of life, the secular way of life, but becoming even more militant in, oppos- in opposing Islamism, meaning they, ha- they develop this uh, bitterness and this hate towards the, 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 the Islamist um, uh, way of, uh, of running things. Now, uh, obviously, at this point, you, you don't. That may not translate into something. But if if there is a collapse, then you have, then the change will be, uh, could even co- could either cause a civil war or something. Uh, unless obviously it's an orderly transition. Uh, but we've seen elsewhere, especially in, in Egypt, after the Islamists ruled uh, Egypt uh, for about a year, 
when uh, when they were removed, you had it had a portion of uh, of Egyptians overreacting to anything Islamist, and uh, they started to demonstrate that they're not Islamist by either removing the hijab or doing other things. And uh, it would take them some time to to to, to, uh, to basically to calm down and say, well, these Islamists were not, uh, you know, when people start to kind of think through uh, the process. So. Yes, on one hand, uh, I think the, the the stakes are high in terms of what could happen next. If the regime holds on, say, for another decade or two, then you will probably have an Iran that changed forever. But if they remove now, then you could have something uh, too destructive in, in Iran. Now, we only have a few minutes uh, left to speak, and I'm sorry we spent 20 minutes on Shia militant Islam versus trying to look at the balance on the Sunni side. But... On Twitter, you made a very interesting observation about a recent document which was released by ISIS. I'd like your take on two pieces of news that came out in the last week. One, the reemergence of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and his first video since his Mosul uh, declaration of the so-called caliphate in uh, 2014 and what that means for ISIS. And the second, responding to a tweet that you made yesterday where you said, for two weeks now, ISIS has published a lessons learned series on the idea of temporary takeover of cities as a method of operation for the Mujahideen. Meaning, we didn't have to win in Baguz. We didn't have to have our caliphate. We can expand and contract our physical control of territory, and we're still as dangerous as we ever were. Uh, what's your take on Baghdadi's reemergence and this uh, you know, ISIS learning its lessons from its defeat in Syria and Iraq? Yeah, well said. Because I think both messages are um, related, uh, which is that this is, we're talking about post-caliphate uh, ISIS, how ISIS uh, is going to behave in the Middle East. Uh, there's a, uh, you know, his, the video that appeared last Monday uh, was basically of Baghdadi showing and speaking to three men in a video. This is a rare moment because the last time he appeared in a video was in July. Uh, 2014, when he announced the caliphate uh, in uh, in the mosque in, uh, in this ancient mosque in in Mosul. Uh, so we have, on one hand, we have this Baghdadi who is uh, who has this habit since he took over in 2010, uh, the leadership of ISIS, uh, ISI at the time, Al Qaeda in Iraq. He uh, he was very conservative in terms of uh, speaking and appearing. Uh, basically, we only saw him twice publicly. Uh, so, uh, why did he appear this time at this critical point when the caliphate collapsed? A lot of people said this is because he wanted to prove that he was still alive and he wanted to keep the caliphate together. In my opinion, I think the message was more ambitious than that. I think he saw some uh, signs of growth uh, for ISIS, which is paradoxical and ironic, considering that we think that ISIS has been collapsed. It has collapsed as a caliphate, but in terms of geographic reach, I think it uh, starts to expand into new areas like Congo, Sri Lanka, uh, and elsewhere. So the, the, to sum up, I think what, we, what we're seeing in terms of the trends related to ISIS is that ISIS is becoming less focused on the West, meaning it's less global than it was in 2014, but it's more than just an Iraqi organization today operating in Iraq and Syria. No, it's a actually expanding in the geographic uh, area around uh, around Iraq and Syria from, a great, you know, the greater Middle East. 
and 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 I think that's going to be their uh, way of operating in the next uh, few years, where they try to grow roots in the area they operate rather than focus on the on the west. And this is a kind of a, a part of a general broader. Uh, trends related to related to all jihadis. All right, we we see ISIS becoming the uh, McDonald's, Burger King, fast food franchise expansion of Sunni extremism. So, exactly. um, I mean, they've even taken a responsibility for actions in the Philippines. We we saw the Brazil ISIS cell that was a few years ago. They're really trying to go for global reach. It, it's as it's as if though a virtual caliphate ensues. Uh, Hassan Hassan. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. I hope we'll be able to have you back in the next few weeks ahead as we get more developments on both Iran, ISIS, and other matters. And uh, any any final thoughts? No, I'm just saying the like uh, the just related to your second question very quickly is that they they don't regret uh, building the caliphate in 2014 going after the West because that enabled them to build a brand where they can uh, grow in the area of the Middle East. Thank you very much. After these messages, final thoughts. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to WWDB 860 AM, Middle East Forum, Century Radio. We've got about three minutes left here in the broadcast, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention something of a personal nature that is being... Um, Memorialized today in another country where I lived for the better part of a decade, Israel, and what will happen tomorrow. The rocket attacks which took place over the weekend, where we had 600 to 700 Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Fatah, and Iranian-backed groups launching devastating salvos against the nation-state of Israel in the south of their country, whether it was to disrupt Israeli Memorial Day, Independence Day, or the planning for the Eurovision uh, competition, which is set to take place in Tel Aviv starting May 18th, is ancillary to something that's going on today and yesterday. Twice a year in Israel, the entire country stops when sirens go off for the better part of a minute to commemorate those who fell in conflicts, either as serving as members of the Israeli Defense Forces or to 3,000-some civilians that were 
killed, maimed, injured, and eventually passed away to their next world due to the result of terrorism either taking place during Israel's wars or during its proxy conflicts with terror organizations. The way in which this is relevant to this broadcast is, is that many of those individuals in the United States that served in the Israeli Defense Forces, whether it was the first chief of staff of the IDF, or whether it was friends of mine who I grew up with here in the Philadelphia region, fell in service of not just fighting for the Jewish state, but of fighting for an idea that the United States and Israel share. The idea that a Western, liberal, free way of life is worth dying for. That democracy and the principles that Western civilization have developed over the past few hundred years are one that can be both embodied by the United States, by Israel, and by other freedom-loving nations. When Israelis stop their cars, get out on the side of the highway, stand at attention, and listen to that siren blare on the streets of Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, Haifa, or other suburbs of the Jewish state. And it's not just Jews, it's also Arabs and Druze and uh, Israeli Christians and Russians and some other 90 different ethnicities that have served in the Israeli Defense Forces. We find that their sacrifice is not for naught. It is for protecting the West. It is for protecting the Jewish state, but it's also for protecting our interests here in the United States. Thanks, everyone. We'll be back next week where I'll be broadcasting live from Jerusalem. Have a good day.